wrestling fans to another episode of Charting the Territories, the podcast that takes you quarter by quarter through the Leroy McGurk Bill Watts territory three months at a time. My name is Al Getson. With me, as always, my intrepid co-host, Mr. John Boucher. How are you tonight, John? How are you, Al? Hello, Al. Hello, listeners. I hope, hope everyone has weathered the the weather. Uh over the last month or so, well, it's been a crazy weather month. A lot of hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, fires, cyclones, monsoons, all, all sorts of stuff. And that's yes. just the weather. Oh. And that's just the weather. And that's just in New York for the and Florida, uh, which, of course, is a <laughs> suburb of New York. But, uh, yeah, yes. I, yeah, I'm hanging in there. We'll talk a little bit about my trip to Vegas. I got back a couple of Ooh. days before we're recording this. But this month on the podcast, John, we're going to look at the third quarter of 1973 in Leroy McGurk's territory. We've got the spoiler, Bob Sweetan, Dewey Robertson, Dr. X, Danny Hodge, and more. Sweetan and Ken Mantell are putting the boots to one another. We have a very unlikely pair of U.S. Tag Team Champions and an interesting group of newcomers, including some of the earliest matches in the careers of Rotten Ron and Pistol Pez. From yeah. there, we're going to look at the first quarter of 1965, where Angelo Savoldi is still king of the junior heavyweights, but Danny Hodge, Mike Clancy, Jack Donovan, Tim Woods, and a host of others are chasing him. Plus, John, we have Elvis Presley's favorite wrestler returning to the territory in early 1965. John, oh, who was Elvis Presley's favorite wrestler? Not Ann Casey. I thought it was Ann Casey well, or Penny well, Benner. For, well, or, uh, uh, he was. Uh, she was one of his favorites, but probably not any you know anything to do with the wrestling. Anything. But uh, who was who was that allegedly? Man? Allegedly, Tretch Phillips. Yeah, Tretch Phillips. I've actually seen that mentioned in a bunch of sources. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, as well as many other things. But uh, before we start the podcast, I do want to mention the passing. Um, seems the last several months, we always start off by talking about someone who has left us far too soon. In this case, it is not a wrestler, but it is a longtime wrestling fan and historian by the name of Seth Hansen, who ran the, I believe it was called Wrestling the Way We Remember It, Twitter account, where he would post uh, cards on, on a daily basis going back years. And I do want to say, when I first really dove into what would become charting the territories, one of the first steps I took was to go online and document every possible house show that already was, you know, recorded, the, that was on a site like Wrestling Data or Cage Match or various books by Mark James or Barry Rose's Facebook group. And one of the sources I used was Seth Hansen's Twitter account. I actually at one point went back through months of his Twitter posts uh, to enter dates and locations of shows into my uh, master database. Uh, so Seth, uh, and he was relatively young too. I believe he was in his mid mid to late thirties. So Seth really, left us I think, way yeah. too soon. John, did you ever have any interactions with him? Oh yeah, lots lots on Twitter. Um, yeah, he was the first person like who I really first noticed took a note of using Twitter. Uh, to disseminate interesting pieces of wrestling history, uh, you know, newspaper clippings, etc. Um, I don't, I don't know. I'm sure the same has happened to you. You've gone to, you're on the newspaper.com or one of the one of the websites, and you think you discover a cool card or a match or a historical tidbit, only to discover that it had been previously clipped by Seth Hansen many years ago. Um, it was always very flattering when you. 
I get you get a retweet or or from something that I posted of his, and it's you know you've always known you found something cool or obscure or super interesting. Um, like I like I, I didn't know him personally outside of Twitter interactions or anything, but this one still like hit me a little you know harder than I thought it would. He's so young, yeah. uh, you know. He posted on social media previously about having some some health issues challenges, but I wasn't aware how serious they were. And now it's just I feel like I wish i had checked in or sent a get well message at some point just you don't conceive of that happening to someone of this age a a peer of ours even you know no you really don't and so to uh, everyone who knew seth to uh any friends or family who might be listening or might hear this uh you know so sorry to hear and uh rest in peace to seth hansen yeah yeah Um, i hope i hope his family and close friends realize how important he was to our little community you know yeah, he really was. I know uh, when I think I first saw the news of his passing from Lance Peterson and uh, the outpouring from uh, many of my friends and colleagues and people all across the wrestling industry was uh, pretty solid. I know Seth at one point said that uh, Jim Cornette paid for Seth's newspapers.com subscription. Yeah, yeah. So, really uh, cool. yeah, that's a really nice uh, gesture on the part of uh, Mr. James E. Cornette. Uh, so, yeah, so rest in peace, Seth Hansen. Now, also this month, John and I will, as we do every month, each name one new thing we learned. I will, as oh, I yes. mentioned earlier, discuss my trip to Vegas where I attended my first Cauliflower Alley Club reunion and convention. And unfortunately, uh Age took a toll on me. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But first, we're going to start with shit John bought me off of eBay. Yeah, baby. Yeah, so this time we have one item, which I'm sure uh, probably costs $51.17. John seems to magically (laughs) find ways to go over the $50 limit. Remember, John is authorized to spend approximately... $50 $50 of my money each and every month to buy me things <laughs> off eBay. And I think one month he came in under, but every other month it just happens to be a little bit over. So he is nickel and diming me to death. Thanks, John. Full, but- full, full disclosure. This, yeah. this month we're under. Uh, full disclosure. I did purchase another item that would have put us over with, with the shipping, but uh, it, it, it didn't arrive in time. It's shipping internationally. Uh, or or has shipped or is in the process of shipping internationally. So much much like you know Jimmy Snuka trying to leave Kuwait in 1985, there's just some delays. Yes, uh, or, or Vader um, perhaps trying to leave <laughs> years but, later. Like Jimmy Snuka, our our package does not contain any controlled substances, so we'll be able to talk about it next month probably. Hopefully. Well, all right, but we do have one item that I did receive this month, so let's go ahead and <laughs> dig on into it. All right, so there's some uh, there's some bubble wrap. Let's throw that to the side. There's some cardboard. I don't know what this is. There's some other cardboard. Oh, uh oh. Okay, we have survival tips. <laughs> All right, this is a pamphlet, and on the front page is a picture of Michael Hayes with two young wrestling fans, one of whom he has in a chin lock, and it says Michael Hayes survival tips. <laughs> <laughs> Tip number one: Stay away from Michael Hayes if you're a if you're a teenage wrestling fan after a show. <laughs> it ain't the sun. Okay, no, this is this is uh, literally survival tips uh, from Michael Hayes. Let's see. Do you know the tips, John? Have you do you know about this? I don't. Conflict? Okay, I don't know the clips. 
All right. Uh, survival tip number one, the enemy. The single worst enemy you must defeat is peer pressure. That unseen monster that makes us do stupid things just so some creep, just so some creep will like us or think we're something we aren't. Whether we're kids, teens, or adults, we all want to be liked by everybody. We don't want to be called chicken, coward, square, or a loser. I'm here to tell you that if you let some crowd of clowns or some jerk-off tell you if you're any good, <laughs> then you probably are a loser. The exactly. only person you need respect from is yourself. If you stick to a few basic rules of life, then you can look yourself in the face with pride every day, and so will the people who count, people you care about. The hell with the others. It's attitude. Living other people's dreams is dumb. Survival right. tip number two is trouble. If you carry <laughs> trouble with you, then you'll get trouble. Trouble equals trouble. Survival mm -hmm. tip number three. Bad street smart. Ah. A smart person recognizes trouble before it comes down. First off, it goes mm. down, not comes down. So this already, I'm, I'm not. Survival tip number four, health. <laughs> a person with good attitude will practice good health and hygiene. Survival tip number five, working out. Again, attitude is everything. And then, oh, there's the Michael Hayes workout, which oh. involves uh, step-ups, crunches, and side crunches, and then running three miles a day. Uh, no, running three okay. miles three days a week. Okay. Survival tip number six for young people. I get a lot of mail from teenagers oh. asking me about how I survived as a teenager. Maybe I didn't. I had to put up with just as much crap as anybody, and I learned a few <laughs> lessons. So this is a pamphlet, uh, street smart, stay out of trouble pamphlet written by Michael P.S. Hayes. Uh, there's also a, uh, a one-page document that says, join Freebird Michael Hayes fan club or else. or else. So already he's threatening people. After giving them tips on survival, he's now threatening them if they don't join his fan club. With peer pressure. With peer pressure. <laughs> and then there's a uh, merchandise uh, catalog, which includes a Michael Hayes Off the Streets t-shirt. Mm. An original Bad Street USA sweatshirt. A Bad Street gym workout shirt. An oversized night shirt. The Bad Street USA smash single, a cap, color photos, cloth bandanas, keychain, and many other items could be yours if you send in all your money to Grand Theft Productions in Irving, Texas. So I guess this probably dates the time of when this was done, given that the address is Irving, Texas, which means it would have been one of the times in world class. But there you go. I now... I'm going to have street smarts on top of all my book smarts, my math smarts, thanks to the one and only Michael PSAs. Now, do we know, did he distribute uh, his survival tips prior to the plane ride from hell? <laughs> I would, I, I, yes, I distributed. I don't know. If, well, uh, yeah. Did anyone listen to them or did they just use I, them as toilet paper? It does not, it does not sound like it. It does not sound like it. Well, there you go. Well, I am now, I am now wiser. And if I send my money to a now defunct P.O. box in Irving, Texas, I might have an oversized Bad Street USA night shirt to oh, keep wow. me all warm and cozy on those cold winter oh. nights that are approaching fairly quickly. They're coming, yeah. Yeah, they are coming. So thank you, John. It's not just a piece of wrestling memorabilia. It is useful advice that I will take with me wherever I go from now on. Yeah. 
you can always make a copy, you know, keep keep the original nice condition, make a copy, fold it up, keep it in your wallet and, just, you know. Yes, and when I'm, when I'm when I'm uh, confronted by street toughs on the street, I will pull out my pamphlet and and re- yeah. and read the read the mantras and do my ab <laughs> workout <laughs> in an attempt to intimidate the street toughs. I'm also I'm I'm, I'm bulletproof now, man. Look out! All right, well, now that that's out of the way. I do want to talk about the podcast I released earlier this month, which was the uh, latest edition of Wrestling History Mysteries. And this mm-hmm. is unique because it's part one of a several-part mystery. As a matter of fact, at this point in time, I honestly don't know how many parts it's going to be. Um, let's just say we're pretty close to solving this mystery, but I'm not ready to swear on a Bible uh, that we 100% have solved it. We're still working on uh, tying up some loose ends, but it's called The Curious Case of Mr. Zabo. And it's not just a story about wrestling history, but more about the process of obtaining wrestling history. And what began as a test of my research methods and powers of deduction turned into an obsession that took me from Oklahoma to Argentina and all places in between, eventually pulling in some of wrestling's most well-known and respected historians, as well as the only two men still alive that shared a dressing room with this masked wrestler who worked for Leroy McGurk in February and March of 1963. Future episodes will continue to unravel this mystery on the second Thursday of each month. Uh, This podcast, Charting the Territories, comes out the fourth Thursday of every month, and for at least the next few months, the second Tuesday is reserved for Wrestling History Mysteries as we continue mm. the curious case of Mr. Zabo. Now, I mentioned that this mystery eventually led to me pulling in some of wrestling's most well-known and respected historians. And of course, John, you're on that list. Oh, you helped. You have uh, you did you did some legwork in particular. You uh, signed on to ancestry.com and did some detective work, uh, <laughs> going all the way down to Argentina to try and help me oh, yeah. with this mystery. So uh, you are just one of many people who have helped. It's it's become a fascinating story, and it, it almost yeah, it to the point where it doesn't even matter who's under the mask, but the story of how we got the answer is what's fascinating about it. So uh, if you haven't had the chance, it's uh, part of the Charting the Territories feed uh, if you subscribe to us through uh, your regular podcast provider, or you can go to chartingthepodcast.com. Now, 1973, the third quarter, uh, we've said this the uh, the last couple of times we've covered 73, but remember Bill Watts left the territory early in the year to go to Georgia, And the territory, as far as looking from a talent roster standpoint, it takes a significant step down. Uh, In the early 70s, 71 and 72, they did big business with Watts, feuding with Dusty Rhodes, feuding with the Spoiler. You had uh, Danny Hodge as the junior heavyweight champion. And I think there's a significant step down talent-wise. But we uh, running down the roster real quickly, the main eventers on the heel side were uh, Don Jardine as the spoiler and Bob Sweetan. And on the babyface side, you had Dewey Robertson, Dr. X, and Danny Hodge. Now, all five of these wrestlers had a spot rating above .90 for the quarter. Main eventers have a spot rating of between .80 and 1, um, but in particular, wrestlers with a .90 or above should be considered the top stars of the territories. You have Spoiler, Sweetan, Dewey, Dr. X, 
and Danny Hodge. Now, the other main eventers who had a spot rating of between 0.80 and 0.90, on the babyface side, you have Ken Mantell, uh, Klondike Bill, Grizzly Smith, and Skandor Akbar. And on the heel side, you have Tarzan Baxter. So, John, uh, when Watts came in, uh, he really transformed the territory from a junior heavyweight territory into a big man's territory. Uh, it probably dates back to the mid-60s when they first brought in uh, the Kentuckians and the Assassins. But uh, particularly when Watts came back late in 1970, there was a much more much more of an emphasis was placed on the big men. In fact, that's uh, when they introduced the North American heavyweight title for years the primary singles title was the world junior heavyweight title. So, John, your thoughts on big men versus little men? Because here, uh, looking at the main eventers, the only little men are Hodge, Mantell, and Tarzan. Um, Dr. X w- uh, could compete in the junior heavyweight division and the heavyweight division, and the same could be said for Akbar. But realistically, you have three junior heavyweights, and you have a lot of big men. You have Grizzly, you have Klondike Bill, you have Don Jardine, you have Sweetan. So uh, what are your thoughts on, on how to balance big men versus little men. I love the territory. Like and I think this territory specifically was 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 great at times because they they did exactly that. They balanced it. They had the big the big guys, but they also you know, maybe that's just because of Hodge and his his legacy in the area. It was like they were always going to be known as, you know, that that sort of like flagship territory of the you know, the junior heavyweight championships. You could always sort of have always always had room for those guys on the roster just because of like the the legacy of Hodge and you know almost the the legacy that 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 belt that title had in the area um and you could bring in the the heavyweights the big the big meaty the big meaty men doing meaty men stuff uh and come find them and they I think they do a, a pretty good job of doing that over the years um some like like you said in the early 60s it was mostly you know the, the the smaller guys, but as the years go by, you start to see the, the 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 blend a little more, and that's what we're seeing here, sort of. Yeah, and we'll be able to see that uh, when we cover 1965 later on this podcast. We can yeah. compare and contrast. So the main feuds, uh, remember, on our blog chartingtheterritories.com, we list not only the spot ratings for all of the regulars uh, in the territory at the time, but we also look at the most frequent opponents and most frequent partners of many of the wrestlers. So the big feuds were uh, in July and August, the spoiler is feuding with Dewey Robertson, and then he transitions to a feud with Grizzly Smith in August and September. Uh, You have Danny Hodge feuding with Tarzan Baxter. You have Ken Mantell feuding with Bob Sweetan. Uh, And then uh, towards the end of the quarter, you have a tag team feud as Ken Mantell and Dewey Robertson feud with the newly crowned U.S. tag team champions Alex Perez and El Gran Tapia. Now, Perez had been here many times before, and I don't really think he ever got pushed above the upper mid-card level. But uh, here he gets a really big push. Um, he's a former Golden Gloves boxer. He worked as a he worked for the Sheriff's Department in Amarillo before becoming a wrestler full-time. He had several runs in this territory, but this was far and away his biggest push. And as for his partner, El Gran Tapia, he is probably better known uh, as Espectro Number 2. Uh, he wrestled in Mexico for many years, also wrestled in Amarillo, and he is the father of Bestia Salvage. So you know, one of the interesting things when it comes to title holders and title histories, we don't know 
uh, if there you know was a reason that this team was picked because remember you have you have Kim Duck and Stan Kowalski uh, in the territories the heel tag team mm. so you would think if they wanted to put the belts on heels they would have switched it to them Perez mm. had never really gotten this type of push before so it's just one of those things that really makes you wonder if there was some sound reasoning behind doing it this way or if I, you know, perhaps I'm overthinking things and they just said, all right, we need heel champs. Let's do, let's give it to these guys. Uh, perhaps they got over uh, together as a team or worked well together as a team. And, and perhaps Duck and Kowalski did not. Although I think Duck and Kowalski get the titles later in the year or maybe in early 74. So again, perhaps they were, you know, maybe more set up as a transition champ. You just don't know. And, and, and that's why, while I understand uh, the the importance of tracking title histories, I, I'm less interested in those as I am the spot on the card, because I think that's where the true information lies. And so no matter how you look at it, Perez and Tapia did get a very big push. Uh, by the end of the quarter, they're in main events uh, and they're feuding with Mantell and Dewey. And Mantell, meanwhile, was also feuding with Bob Sweetan. And we have a town-by-town, date-by-date look at that feud on the blog. It's our anatomy of a feud. And John, the feud feud. started over a boot. (laughs) This is a great feud. (laughs) So have you seen seen footage of this? I haven't seen footage of it. Okay, so Um, I'm I'm just loving it from reading the the stipulations... And yeah, the results yeah, we, in we your list, descriptions. Yeah, of, we list the stipulations of the matches <laughs> and the finishes. And I, I say this many times, but in this era, this was not a deal where they ran the same finish in every city, you know, week yeah. after week. Um, in particular, this feud, they used the boot as the impetus to begin the feud. And many of the finishes involve the boot, but it's different from town to town. Um, but it starts with a TV angle where while Sweet Tan is wrestling a preliminary wrestler or a TV enhancement guy, Ken Mantell comes running out, and <laughs> while Sweet Tan is wrestling, he just grabs his boot, pulls it off, and runs away with it. So they start running matches in various towns where if Sweet Tan wins, he gets the boot back. Um, in some towns, they do a finish where uh, they're fighting over the boot and the, the ref the ref accidentally gets knocked out. Or Sweet Tan will change into steel-toed cowboy boots and start using them and get disqualified. So they come up with as many different ways as you can think of to involve boots in a wrestling finish. So you can read about how they put the boots to one another. <laughs> over the course of this feud on the blog. Um, and some of the other mid-carders in the territory, uh, Dennis Stamp is booked, uh, yes. Perez and Tapia. We have a brief appearance by Mike George, and then we have a motley crew of heels. As we mentioned earlier, Kim Duck and Stan Kowalski. And Kim Duck is Tiger Tokuchi, a.k.a. Tiger Chung Lee. Oh, yeah. We also have George Holtz, who played one season with the St. Louis Cardinals in the NFL, and his brother Don Holtz played in the NFL for a decade, mostly with the Eagles. We also have Jerry Killer Miller, also known as Duke Miller. And we have one of those guys where uh, I, I, I bring this up just about every month in a business filled with nut jobs. This guy was an even bigger nut job than all the other nut jobs. And oh, that wow. is Tank Morgan. Oh boy. Yeah. Um, in a lot of ways, like, like Tank Morgan 
on the surface at least so it just seems like a, a textbook example of a, of a like a journeyman wrestler from the territorial era like you know former merchant marine wrestled for like 15 years wrestled everywhere bunch of different aliases frank morgan brute morgan dick morgan paul mcmanus Arbic mcmanus a couple different mass gimmicks super inferno i think and amarillo one of the mass saints in florida with dale lewis and bobby hart it was dante of dante mephisto uh you know, main evented the garden with Bruno in late 66, did the Northeast loop with Bruno, wrestled all the big names from 60s and 70s, usually booked like a solid mid card heel type guy. Um, I don't know, maybe this might be a weird place to go right off the bat, but I think like starting with his mysterious death <laughs> sort of helps frame yeah, his, let's, his let's, life story. Let's start I, with the end. <laughs> it, it sort of helps it sort of helps frame his life story actually it's so, like if you're making a yes. documentary to start paul with Mc, this yeah. scene. paul mcmanus uh aka tank morgan on the morning of august 15th 1991 in las vegas nevada tank was on his way to the gym to work out in the morning when he was shot in the head once and killed <laughs> and there, 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 there and there have been like conflicting reports about his death even like i i believe uh, I believe Barry Rose, uh, Florida wrestling historian, he mentioned earlier, co-host of Breaking Cafe with Badger and Barry, actually saw a copy of the police report and was able to confirm that it was indeed a single bullet to the head, execution style. Um, there were rumors earlier that it was a hail of gunfire, multiple wounds, case of mistaken identity and a drive-by shooting, but none of these claims that they've ever been verified. Some Some reports say he was walking to the gym when he was killed. Some say he was walking his dog. Uh, yeah, I think I where the dog him. where the dog comes into play is that after uh, Tank was killed, a police officer went to Tank's residence to retrieve his dog, and the police yeah. officer's car was stolen while he was yes. in this guy's <laughs> place trying to get the dog. So just nothing a, can be normal about. That. Yeah, uh, and and to the best of my knowledge, this mystery uh, is still unsolved. Thirty years later, in fact, we just yeah. we're just a little over a month past the thirty year anniversary. Um, and so the question is, was this, uh, you know, just a random killing? Was it mistaken identity or was it perhaps something more sinister? And so I, again, refer everyone to Barry Rose and Jeff Bowdrin, uh, on episode 83 of Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, they go into some more details where they discuss Tank and his murder and the alleged possibility that he allegedly was a professional hitman who would allegedly (laughs) get booked in territories for a brief period of time while he allegedly was there to off somebody. You mentioned he he was the classic journeyman. He's in this territory for a while, but many of his stints in various places are very short, even for journeymen. We look at people usually spending two to four months at a time in a place and it sure looks like Tank Morgan spent less than that. I think on Bowden and Barry, Barry says he would call a promoter and say, I'm going to be in town for 20 days. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then that's not only how it worked. Even, you know, even when you were a journeyman, you didn't give the promoter a length of time. You went there and if they liked you and you were happy with your pay, you would stay there until they that no longer happened. So it wasn't usually predetermined how long they'd be there. So just the fact that he's, you know, giving them advance notice of how long he'll be there is a potential red flag to the alleged uh, secret alter ego, secret life of Tank Morgan. Yeah. 
there's you know and the, the episode is really good and you can, you can listen to that episode and then from there you can decide if you want to get out the list of unsolved murders in the u.s and compare it to tank morgan's whereabouts at the time I'm not saying that i've done that i'm not <laughs> saying i haven't done that i'm just saying you can if you want to uh, that that would make for a great wrestling history mystery or unsolved mysteries <laughs> to actually go through and find unsolved murders at the time Tank Morgan was wrestling somewhere and see if we could tie them together. That would be fascinating. But another yeah, maybe I'll do um, a run. Another potential uh, out of the ring escapade of Tank and John. Um, since you sent this to me, I've done some detective work and I, I'm, I'm we're oh. going to discuss some things. But. Um, this was an article in the Honolulu Star Bulletin in September 1970, where it says mm-hmm. a man named Robert Radabaugh, also known mm-hmm. as Tank Morgan, was arrested mm-hmm. on two counts of selling narcotics. So what I'll say is this. Tank Morgan is definitely wrestling in Hawaii over the yes. summer. Yes. But I this is the first and only time I've seen the name Robert Radabaugh associated yeah. with Tank Morgan. The other yeah. thing in the newspaper article, he is listed as 31 years old in September 1970. And Tank would have been 37. Uh, Paul McManus, mm. Tank Morgan, would have been 37. And in fact, um, they list his age in 1991 when he dies as 58. So that um, also mean, you know, that confirms he would have been 37 in 1970. Doesn't mean it's wrong. Um, perhaps mm. someone transcribed, looked at a handwritten seven and thought it was a one. Um, but And I don't know about the real name thing. Perhaps that real name was another fake name. Robert Radabaugh was, yeah. you know, his alias when he was allegedly, you know, killing Legend. people as part of his alleged yeah. job as, a, as an alleged hitman. Yeah. But it just allegedly. brings up some questions. And that's one of the things that, John, you and I spend a lot of time discussing is, is the fact that wrestling oh, yeah. history is a tricky business. Um, I don't know for sure if this Tank Morgan that was arrested in Hawaii in 1970 was the same one uh, as the wrestler better known as Tank Morgan, but I don't, I can't prove that he isn't either. And, and that's the trick. It is thing. weird. It's tricky too, because after this arrest, like there's no sign of Tank Morgan until I think, I think he shows up in Vancouver in like October 72, Yeah, which makes it, you know, which is weird. Yeah, so it, it's entirely possible that was because he was serving time in jail, but we, we can't prove it and we can't disprove it. And, and that's yeah. sort of the tricky thing. Uh, another interesting thing looking at the house show lineups in 1973 is that one or two of the Von Steigers are here um, for the for, for about two weeks. Kurt Von Steiger is advertised. And then for about four weeks, Carl von Steiger is advertised. Oh. They are never um, there at the same time, uh, and they're never on the same show, and they're not even in different shows on the same dates. What's interesting is where I have results, some of the times where it's billed as Kurt, the results listed as Carl. And when it's listed as Carl, most of the time the results listed as Carl, except for one or two times where they listed as Kurt. Now, at the time, Kurt and Carl were not teaming up. They they were taking a few-year break from being a team. And Carl von Steiger leaves Amarillo at the exact time that Carl von Steiger starts being advertised here. And when he stops being Mm. advertised here, he returns to Amarillo. 
So, which makes it very likely that it was him for those four weeks, but makes it difficult to think that it was him the first two weeks. So it very possibly mm. may have been Kurt Von Steiger for two weeks, and then Kurt leaves, and Carl comes in for four weeks, because Kurt also can't be found in another territory at that time either. So again, mm. it's a situation, if we go by what's in the ads, Kurt was here for two, Carl was here for four. If we try and use common sense, we still can't, you know, it would make sense that it was only one of them, but I can't, I can't put my finger on which one it was because no matter who it was, there's some sort of a weird issue going on. So there was at least one Von Steiger here in 1973, and there might have been two, which brings us, John, to Butcher Brannigan. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, a few months ago, we were discussing Butcher Brannigan, and we uh, mentioned a YouTube match of his that could be found from Florida against Steve Kern. However, eagle-eyed podcast listener Fred, I'm not going to give his last name because I haven't uh, gotten the okay from him, but a guy named Fred who listens to our podcast reached out to me on Twitter to say, that's not Butcher Brannigan. So I went back, I looked at the video, I looked at some pictures of Joe Nova, Butcher Brannigan, and I'm pretty sure it's not the same guy. Yeah. So, John, I brought this to your attention. And what we think yeah. is that this second Butcher Brannigan was a wrestler who often wrestled as Buck Brannigan. Buck. Yeah. But in Florida, he sure seems to have been billed as Butcher Brannigan. And I think this is what, 1980? 1980, yes. 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 Um, but he's uh, not Joe Nova. So, again, this yeah. is one of those things. This is where it becomes tricky to document history because you look at ads and you see the name Butcher Brannigan. You say, oh, there's a well-known wrestler, Joe Nova, who wrestled as Butcher Brannigan. I'm almost certain it's him. He's not wrestling anywhere else at the time. So, boom, it's him. And it might not be. So... I just wanted to put that out there because one of the things that I think is very important for us as wrestling historians to do is to admit when we're wrong or at the very least when we're unsure of something. Oh, yes. Uh, and, you know, in most cases, we can be 99% sure of something. Um, you know, we're talking about the, the mass wrestler, Mr. Zabo. I think even when we do finally solve that mystery... I don't think I'll be able to say I'm 100% sure it was so-and-so. I think it's going to be somewhere in the high 90%. So it's just important to accept that you might be wrong about things. And when you are proven wrong, to admit it. And another minor note, um, when we looked at this territory a few months ago, uh, the second quarter of 1973, there was a newcomer named Leo Labello. Um, and him and Duke Bobo were two newcomers, and oh, neither of us had any idea of who they were. We had never heard of them before. I found some evidence pointing to the fact that Leo Labello may have been Leo Seitz, hmm. which is odd because Leo Seitz wrestled here as Leo Seitz. It seems yeah. odd huh. that he would come back a year later as Leo Labello, but this is not unheard of in pro wrestling. Um, it's not out of the realm of possibility. So again, um, you know, we don't know everything and we never will. And, and, you know, the identity of a prelim wrestler who, you know, never got out of the prelims, who was here for two months. It's not the, you know, it's not 
vital to solve this. But if we want to truly be historians and document the history of wrestling, we need to, you know, do all these, you know, who's who and, and link all these guys to all their possible aliases. One guy we do know who he was, even though he wore a mask, was Pantera Negra, who uh, mm-hmm. is another mid-carder here in 1973. Now, Pantera Negra is somewhat known, but definitely not as well known as his brothers. In particular, one of his brothers is perhaps the most famous wrestler in all of Mexico, El Santo. Yes. And his other brother, of course, is Black Guzman. Oh, yes, yes. And Negra was uh, doing a little tour of the U.S. He actually came to the States either, I think, in very early 1973, and he teamed up with El Cicadelico. And El Cicadelico is another third most famous brother of a very famous Mexican wrestling family. Cicadelico is the brother of John. Have I stumped you? Is I think you've stumped me. Okay. Is he... So after El Santo, who would you say is the next most famous Mexican wrestler of all time? Is he Mil Mascaris' brother? Yes. No. He yes. is. Yes. I was good. I was. I was. That was going to be my first guess, but I wasn't. Uh, See, I'll come on. I wasn't willing I'll, to pull the. Pre- always got to go with your first instinct. I yeah, I know. I did. I was. I was. I. I, I went with my lifeline. You're my lifeline. All right. So no? so if he was brothers with Mil Mascaris, who else was he brothers with? Uh, Dos Caras. Correct. Yes. So there you go. So yes, that's uh, the family tree of Pantera Negra and El Cicadelico. And I think when they first came to the States in 73, they first worked for Ann Gunkel. Uh, And then they split up. Uh, Pantera went to East Texas for a while, and then he came here. I think Cicadelico, I think he went out west. Um, But yes, they originally came together, but uh, soon split up. Another newcomer in the mid-cards is someone I think we are all familiar with, but uh, I really didn't know a lot about his early career and his early life until we started researching him for this podcast. And that is Pistol, Pez, Shaska, Willie B. Hurt, Watley. (laughs) So, John, like you said, I... Let's talk about Pez. Let's let's spread some knowledge on Pez. Let's dispense some (laughs) wisdom. So, John, if we did that, what would that make us? Would that make us Pez dispensers? Yes, we are going to be Pez dispensers talking about uh, Pistol Pez Watley. Now, John, Pez uh, was a decorated wrestler in high school. In fact, he is one yeah. of the first black student athletes at Notre Dame High School in Chattanooga. Hmm. And the way it reads, it actually sounds very similar to Sylvester Ritter's story, where um, a small number of black athletes were recruited by coaches at white high schools to uh, cross over to the still uh, segregated school systems. Uh, That's what happened with uh, Sylvester, the future junkyard dog, uh, a few years earlier in Louisiana. And it, it sure seems that that's what happened here with Pez. Uh, now, one of the really neat things about when we do research is sometimes you find the weirdest connections. And John, you found a great article from the Nashville Tennessean in 1968 that discusses an upcoming statewide meet. It lists some of the notable wrestlers, including Pez. But what's amazing about this article is the picture. So, John, tell us uh, oh, yeah. about the picture. The picture, I'm pulling it up now, it's got a... Uh, one of the one of the students 
on the mat there with two professional wrestlers, uh, one of which is Lynn, Lynn Rossi, who we, we talked about a couple months ago, a, a well-known uh, Memphis wrestler, and Tony Lazari, who I forget the other name he, uh, he wrestled um, under. Uh, Tony Romano, I think, is a more yes. familiar name of his. But yeah, um, and this, was, this wasn't uh, Pez's school, but it was pictures from another school that had brought in Len and Tony Lazari to sort of work out with their, their uh, high school wrestling athletes. So it's, it's really neat to see, you know, the two worlds, pro wrestling and high yeah. school amateur wrestling, collide, uh, particularly since uh, it's contained in an article that mentions a future professional wrestler, Pez Watley. Now, early in Pez's career, uh, besides this run for Leroy McGurk, he was one of the, uh, we'll call him the king of the outlaws. Uh, he started <laughs> yeah. his career working for Phil Golden, who ran opposition to Goulas in Kentucky. He, after working for Leroy, he went to Eddie Einhorn's IWA. And not long after that, he worked for Luthez's UWA, which was also competition to Goulas, but this time in, in uh, Nashville and Chattanooga. So Pez worked for a lot of outlaws. And what's interesting is there's a reason he started his career with Phil Golden. Yeah, whenever it's interesting when you think about the guys working for these, you know, quote unquote outlaw promotions, you always think like, Hmm, I, I wonder what, you know, sad set of circumstances led to this guy having to work for this sad old outlaw promotion. What sort of behind the scenes shenanigans led him to being blackballed by the establishment. But in reality, more often than not, uh, the state of affairs aren't, aren't that quite that dramatic case in point here with, with young Pez. Um, you know, he, one of his college teammates was George Weingaroff, son of ah, Saul Weingaroff. There you and go. And Saul, Saul is one of the guys who you know ended up training Pez for pro wrestling. Uh, yeah, and that's who he broke in with in uh, Kentucky '72 for Phil Golden, right. where Saul and the Von Brauners were working. Uh, were quick question about Golden was I was reading about the Golden promotion and was Golden were they the promotion that did one of their TV episodes on the roof of their TV studio? I haven't heard that. that. I forget if it was. A, I can only. I always imagine one of the promoters like seeing the Let It Beatles Let It Be movie and be like, "Yeah, why don't I try that? Why not give that? Huh. Let's give that a try." But, Could be. Uh, but and Phil Golden <laughs> is not to be confused with Bill Golden, who is a different wrestling promoter. And but I think uh, all part of the family, which is uh, kin to Jimmy Golden and thus kin to the Fuller, Welch, Hatfield, McCoy clan. Uh, goodness. Um, but yes, so uh, Pez went to college and was a college teammate uh, at the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga, with George Weingroff, whose father, Saul Weingroff, was working for Phil Golden. So that's how Pez started uh, in the Outlaws. And there's a magazine article. Um, and, and when we refer to these articles, uh, uh, they're in the newspapers or magazines or YouTube clips. Check my Twitter because in the, in the week or so after this podcast comes out, I will be posting links and pictures of these articles on my Twitter account. So it's at Al Gets Wrestling. But there's a magazine article discussing Pez as a rookie on the rise. And it talked about his time in Kentucky for Phil Golden, then to Oklahoma and Louisiana, and then to the IWA. Now, what's very interesting about this article, John, is it discusses a rookie, Pez Watley, and as we already established, he turned pro in 1972. But the magazine is dated June 1976. 
Yeah. Yep. Yep. And this was something we saw before. Um, we've talked about in the past where it just seems that they write these articles and have them on file and wherever there's space, they use them. And which reminds me, another correction we need to talk about uh, that I forgot to mention when we were talking about Butcher Brannigan and Leo Labello and the Von Steigers. Dennis Bockwinkle. Uh, and the reason oh, I'm yes. now remembering him is because <laughs> you, you showed me a previous magazine article that talked about him in Amarillo that was dated 1975, but he, he was in Amarillo in 71 or 72. But Dennis Bockwinkle, believe it or not, was Nick Bockwinkle's brother. Yes. Nick had two brothers who uh, both of them were very peripherally involved in wrestling. Uh, I forget the other one's name, but he was a referee for a brief period of time. And Dennis... Bobby? I, I, maybe. Bobby Bockwinkle. Has a nice ring to it. it um, does, <laughs> and Dennis wrestled... Uh, first, he was a referee as Dennis O'Brien, and then he wrestled a little bit as Dennis O'Brien. And then for at least two stints, one in Amarillo and one here in Oklahoma, he wrestled as Dennis Bockwinkle. And we sort of speculated, oh, well, since he started out working for the AWA, he probably decided to take Nick's ring name and bring it to another territory. Well, it turns out it was his name, too. Yeah. Like John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. His name is my name, too. <laughs> Let's talk YouTube footage, though. Let's talk YouTube footage of Pez. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, there's stuff. a really fun little TV match from uh, Poffo's ICW with Pez versus yeah. Bob Orton Jr. And Bob Orton Jr. was at Cauliflower Alley Club. Um, but the setup to this match was that Pez was billed in this promotion as the first man to kick out of Bob Orton's pile driver. Yep. Uh, the match is also notable for color commentary from Randy Savage that is only slightly racist. Slightly. Yeah, slightly. Slightly racist. And speaking uh, of offensive and unnecessary humiliation of African-American wrestlers, the mop nope. head match between Ronnie Garvin <laughs> and Pez Watley is featured on a full ICW TV episode that's available on YouTube. So, John, what is the mop head match? The mop head match... The setup, they, you know, the setup, the actual match is basically just, you know, loser wears a mop. Seems simple enough. But like the 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 aftermath of it is is really what's what's funny. Like who Pez loses, so he's forced to wear the mop on his head. According to Ronnie Garvin, everywhere going to the store, going to the bank, wherever he's going, post office, got to wear the mop head. Uh, and he has to wear the ma wear the mop. In you know during his matches until he, till he you wins. know uh, until he wins until he wins another match. So this the the premise here is that during and it plays out on TV here. Pez is about to win. Ronnie Garvin runs in, you know, ostensibly on behalf of Pez and and stomps Pez's opponent. So you know Pez gets disqualified. Right. <laughs> So he has to keep the. So that's how they play this over weeks and weeks and weeks, and it's it's fantastic. Yeah, uh, and you know, it wouldn't play today. Uh, no, no. And, and you know, I guess we should address this. We we you know jokingly ref referred to the plane ride from hell earlier. Look, we're wrestling historians, John. Both you and I are well aware that wrestling was not politically correct. That that it's uh, it was an abhorrent business that attracted abhorrent people. For the most part, we're oh, yes. we, we don't we're we're just 
saying it as it is. We we're not glamorizing it. I'm glad that they can't get away with this shit that that they did back then anymore. And, and I hope oh, yeah. there are continued changes and progress made, not just in professional wrestling, but in all of society. Uh, but we, you know, in in discussing wrestlers and and wrestling, we we have to touch upon these issues. Please don't think we are endorsing it or supporting it. Uh, you know, uh, I I like to think. If you listen to our podcast, you know where both of our heads and hearts are at uh, when it yes. comes to uh, some of the, you know, some of these issues. Uh, and just, you know, this is what it is. Yep. On a random segue, John, I once went on a date with a woman <laughs> who went to high school with one of Pez's sons. Really? Yeah. Wow. That was uh, So it was the That's only, cool. the one and only time in my life I did speed dating. I ended oh, up wow. going on a total of three dates with two women. Uh, this was the one who uh, was just one date. Um, but, uh, you know, at, at some point wrestling came up and she goes, oh, yeah, I went to high school with Pez Watley Jr. So there huh. you go. It's a, it's a small world wow. after all. It John, wow. do you have any weird connections uh, like that uh, about wrestling that happened outside <gasps> of the wrestling world? No, absolutely not. Absolutely nope. not. Nope. You, never, never the, you never mentioned to a guy not. that you followed wrestling. They said, oh, you know, my cousin was the second ultimate warrior after the first one died. I thought we well, all had that story. Well, I, you know, not now that I think about it, my my wife, um, uh, I remember Zan Casey before. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, my wife. No, she's she's still with us. No one's no one shot my my sweet Sarah. Uh, I remember somehow, you know, yeah. You when I when I would talk about wrestling, uh, especially around around women, when I was single, I would try to not talk about wrestling. Um, but occasionally, a a a, mut- a mutual friend would would bring it up, and Sarah was like, "Oh, my 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 cousin was a wrestler," uh, and uh, it turns out I actually had. Uh, I still do have a video footage of her cousin wrestling for uh, uh, Jersey All Pro Wrestling in the early 2000s. Uh, his name one of the name JT Loner, JT Jobber, cousin huh. Jay. Uh, um, and so that, I guess that that's sort of, you know, not exactly speed dating, but that was, you know, so I, you know, and one of before we were actually dating, I was like, oh, I, I know him. I think I have. So I dug out the videotape and, you know, filmed my TV with the little you know, a little thing of her, her Sarah's cousin, you know, doing a doing a tope out of the ring or something and send it to her. So that was a one of our, our earliest my earliest attempts at flirting with my my now wife was sending some Jersey all pro wrestling from the early 2000s. So <laughs> and it worked, apparently <laughs> it worked. It worked. Who knew? So there's, Who ho- knew? there's hope for all us other wrestling fans that we can use wrestling to score to, to score spouses. Yeah. 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 Just be yourself, guys. Just be yourself. Uh, trust me, that's not that. <laughs> in my 50 years. That hasn't worked yet, John. Are you saying the 897th time will be the charm? Perhaps maybe, it will. Maybe. Perhaps it will. But uh, oh. so aside from Pez, there's another mid Carter making his first appearance in the territory. And he's one of those guys that, I, you know, lots of people earn the tag underrated or underappreciated, you know, and, and they're, they tend to be very well-known, very well-respected, very well-appreciated wrestlers. Uh, for example, Brad Armstrong. And I'm not saying he wasn't underrated, but, you know, when I think underrated or underappreciated, I really want to think of guys that are completely under the radar. And I think this next guy, 
might fit that bill. Uh, everyone Absolutely. I know that worked with him or knew him said that he is vastly underrated and underappreciated. And that is Wild Bill Ash. Yeah. So, John, rather than us try and convince our listeners that he was underrated, we're going to let them do the research yourself because you found several matches oh, yeah. of his on YouTube. And uh, just to give you an idea of who he's working with, he's in the ring against guys like Ricky Morton, Scott Armstrong, Bill Dundee, Tommy Rich, and more. So uh, if you want to visit uh, YouTube, uh, we'll post the links again on my Twitter account and watch these matches. And if you don't come away from it feeling that Bill Ash is someone you wish you had heard more about or knew more about, or that yeah. perhaps might have gotten more opportunities, um, you know, please check it out for yourself. But another interesting thing about Bill is that he and his father were bootmakers for wrestlers for many years based out of Paris, yeah. Arkansas. Yep. They, yeah. They, uh, they, 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 according to them, like at their peak, they, at their busiest, they were producing something like with like 1500 pairs of boots a year. I guess his dad, uh, Noel Ash was a executive general manager type for, for shoe companies for years and years and years. And eventually in the early seventies, he started his own shoe manufacturing business right around the same time, uh, Bill started in the wrestling business and he was having trouble finding boots. And according to, according to Bill, like all the boys were stuffing sponges and paper and boxing boots. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the, the elder Ash made a, a custom pair of boots for his son using his patented quote unquote, air cellular material in order to, to cushion the blows that are unique to to pro wrestling. Um, and over, over the years, like their, their, their company, the, the, the B-Bar 8 boot company supplied boots to everyone from like Hulk Hogan to Cowboy Lang to they also uh, did, Two Tall Jones. Yeah, they also made... Twisted Sister! Well, like this, they made a pair of 17 E-E-E-E boots for Ed Two Tall Jones. As you mentioned, they uh, they made boots for Twisted Sister, and I've got I've actually got a story on this. Um, oh wow! So yeah, so uh, they made boots for all four members of Twisted Sister, uh, but there was something wrong with D Snyder's boots, and so D called up Bill and said, you know, look, uh, these boots these boots uh, aren't the right size or the right color, or whatever it was. Um, and Bill said, no, I I made them exactly to your specifications. You're going to take it. And do you know what D. Snyder said back to Bill Ash? Oh, he I said, know, we're not going to take it. <laughs> no, we ain't going to take it. That is not a true story, by the way. I had you I had you going, though. Yeah, I, I was like, oh, tell me more like, about Oh, wow, Al knows something about D. Snyder and wrestling boots. This is amazing. Yeah, And it said it's just a cheesy... You had a great zebra story last month. I did. I figured you go from zebra to Twisted so. <laughs> And, well, Twisted Sister is from Long Island, where uh, I also, grew up. yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, I, I remember, I remember, you know, locally there was a, a, a lot, they got a lot of press in Newsday. Um, you know, as local boys making it big. Yeah. So did Zebra. And then years later, after I left New York, there was another band from Long Island, uh, Taking Back Sunday. I think they're emo or whatever the, the kids emo. call yeah. uh, pop punk these days. Uh, they also hit the big time as well. So a few bands from Long Island have made it. But also worth noting when it comes to Billy Ash is that he trained many wrestlers, including Tretch Phillips Jr., once again, proving that everything in wrestling is related by no more than a few degrees of separation, because we're going to yeah. talk about Tretch Sr. later in the podcast. 
Um, but to wrap up our coverage of 1973, you can see the advertised lineups for all known house shows in the territory on our blog. Uh, for the third quarter of 1973, John, I have listings for 222 house shows two. uh, in a three-month period. And that's and that, that's a palindrome, 222. Now, once, one thing that's interesting to note about the calendar, um, uh, as you see it on the blog, you know, for the most part, it's the same towns week after week on the same nights, except the very last week of September, a few towns are not run that had normally been run. And uh, these were the towns that were promoted by Leonard Clay, who was one of mm. Leroy's local promoters and who is related to Bob Clay, who we, we've talked about in the past, who was a yep. wrestler and a trainee of Leroy McGurk's and was his local uh, promoter for many years. Uh, eventually his, I think it's brother, but I'm not positive, but his relative Leonard Clay got involved as well. And by the early 70s, Leonard Clay is promoting his towns plus all the ones that Bob had run. But there are no shows using Leroy McGurk's uh, crew the last week of September. Hmm. What happened? We'll talk about it uh, when we cover the fourth quarter of 1973. But let's just say Leonard Clay switched allegiances to another hmm. booking office. And you're going to be somewhat surprised to find out who it was. So that's a little hmm. bit of foreshadowing of what's to come. Uh, later on this year, when we cover the fourth quarter of 1973, which also is going to feature one of the biggest heel turns uh, in the history of the territory, and certainly in the pre-Mid-South years, it might be the biggest heel turn, and it sets up the lead main event heel for the next pretty much two years in the territory. Wow. So you've got that to look forward to. So now that brings us to 1965, and this is the first time we're looking at 1965, so we are, of course, going to cover the first quarter of 1965. Uh, remember last month we talked about the junior heavyweight title situation? Oh, yeah. So Voldy, uh, uh, well, Matsuda was the champ. Hodge was chasing him, and just when it seemed like he was going to win it, Angelo Savoldi swoops in and wins the title. Matsuda leaves. Hodge has a handful of title bouts with Savoldi, but is unable to win. So now, as we enter 1965, they are intentionally keeping Savoldi and Hodge apart. Like I said, they had a few matches right after Savoldi uh, regained the title, um, but they're making a concerted effort to separate them to um, build Hodge up uh, with the story that he's trying to work his way back into contention. Meanwhile, Savoldi is defending the title against wrestlers, including Mike Clancy, uh, Tim Woods, the future Mr. Wrestling, oh. and even fellow heel Jack Donovan. Now, speaking of Jack Donovan, we've talked about him in the past, but um, recently we were sent uh, some pages from the Jack Donovan Fan Club Bulletin for February yeah. 1968. These were sent to us by wrestling historian Steve Ogilvy, uh, who uh, has a wealth of knowledge, particularly of uh, New Zealand. Uh, professional wrestling, oh, yeah. but all all sorts of territories. He's very active on Twitter, posting cards from various territories and various times. But he sent four pages of the Jack Donovan Fan Club Bulletin for February 1968. Now, this bulletin lists matches involving Donovan and his wife from 16 house shows in the McGurk Territory between January 31st and February 28th of 1968. 
So what I decided to do, John, I compared that list of matches to what I've got in my records to see how complete ah. they got it back in 1968. So all mm -hmm. 16 that they had were ones I had. Uh, and then on okay. top of that, I had seven other listings that weren't in the bulletin. So I had oh, 23 matches over a 29-day period for Jack Donovan, and they had 16. But one thing that's really interesting is that the bulletin contained one match listing from Texarkana. And if you remember, huh. uh, on the August yeah, episode was, uh... of Stats 101, Texarkana was a regular town that had been, quote-unquote, lost to history for many years. Yeah. But this is proof that, at least for a, at some point in time, results from Texarkana may have been printed in various newsletters and fanzines. Yeah. Now, I don't know um, where... Uh, these came from. Now, aside from the match listings, there are also news clippings from uh, newspaper articles, but these aren't um, copies of the actual article. They actually went and retyped out what was yeah. what was written in the article, as opposed to, you know, some of those old newsletters you see, they literally cut out the newspaper article and paste it, yeah. paste several of them on a page. This, they actually retyped or as you said, transcribed the article. So I don't know if they got the match listings from the Donovans themselves and or from whatever uh, newsletters, bulletins, fanzines were out there. Um, but it's interesting that uh, at the very least, Texarkana was on someone's radar way back yeah. in 1968. Now, John, have you ever seen those cut and paste jobs of the newsletters? Oh, yeah. I, I love those. Um, I, I love th those fanzines, bulletins, fan club newsletters, whatever you want to call them. Like you said, they're, they're 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 entertaining, fun to read, but also, like you said, like very valuable as far as actual wrestling history is concerned. It's like a lot of the results that we have now were pulled from these bulletins and, and record books yeah, or whatever. I, I um, think when Wrestling Data first started, WrestlingData.com, one of the things they did was went through Jason Campbell's archive of all these old newsletters uh, that hmm. he has on his supercards and tournament sites. And I think that's where they transcribed a lot of the match results and listings they have from. Now, one of the things that drives me crazy about them is that they are not in chronological order, like within one issue, which would be for March of 1974. You know, uh, the first page is not everything from the first week of March and then the second week and so on and so forth. It's all just uh, haphazard order. Uh, and, you know, sometimes things are continued on another page and you have to look at the other page to see where the date of the yeah. article from the first page <laughs> is. So it, it can be a little maddening to follow along, but there is so much information uh, in these newsletters. Uh, and it's really amazing as much as nowadays, you know, you think, you know, how easy it is to just uh, put stuff on the internet and everyone can see it. The fact that there was a network of probably dozens if not, you know, a hundred or so people cutting articles out of their local papers and sending them to people to then compile yeah. all of them together to send a newsletter out to those original hundred people plus other subscribers. It's really amazing yeah. how they were able to document all this stuff. And I mean, some of them, you know, have stuff from internationally too. Like they'll have, you know, WWF yeah. stuff and then they'll have, you know, stuff from Guam or, you know, Japan yeah. or whatever. It's, it's really amazing. Yeah, it's like there was a Tom Burke's global wrestling newsletter that he had. It's just incredible. Like it's you're like, holy, I can't believe someone was doing this in like the 70s. It's, it's absolutely incredible. And we, we talked about it was a Wayne St. Wayne, Mike Hammer, 
a couple months ago, that was one of the things he would do when he would go to, you know, shows at the Keel. He would go and he'd buy a stack of like 20, 30, 40, 50 programs at every at every card and would just send them out in exchange for, you know, and that was like the network they had. Right. It was it's it's fascinating. Yeah. And, that, you know, that reminds me of the days when I ran WooWrestling.com in the late 90s, early 2000s. You would have wrestlers send me results from the shows they worked on. And yep. in some cases, shows they made up as well. <laughs> uh, in particular, I didn't find, I, I always suspected it, but I didn't know it for sure. And I, I got confirmation years later. There was a group of, of wrestlers, legitimate, you know, pro wrestlers, um, that, were based out of Texas. Uh, one was named Joey Corman. One was named Samir Jabbar. I forget the others. Um, and they would mix in some fake results with some real results to make it look like they were working five, five, six nights a week instead of two or three. And something always seemed fishy about it, but I didn't have the ability to, you know, prove them yeah. wrong. Um, but I think either one of them or someone who knew them told me years later, yeah, they did that. They gotcha. <laughs> I also gotcha. remember Necro Butcher very actively politic to be my wrestler of the week. And he would constantly send in uh, his, you know, his results and details from, from the, you know, the matches he had in an attempt to be named uh, the wrestler of the week. Uh, so of course uh, he wore me down over time and I did finally <laughs> name him the wrestler of the week. And John, did you ever see the Shawshank Redemption? I did years ago. Years so ago. Uh, when, uh, when he kept writing letters to the uh, state prison board to have them send books for the library. Remember, oh, he, yeah, sent, yeah. he sent one a week, and for years they ignored him until finally they sent him a huge collection of books. And in the letter accompanying it, they said, we hope this will end your letters. <laughs> and uh, he looks at the prison guard and says, well, now I'm going to write two a week. <laughs> so much like that, once I named Necro Butcher the wrestler of the week, instead of him stopping, he doubled down and sent me even more details and clippings and, and hype trying to get uh, himself to be once again the wrestler of the week. Oh, boy. That time it didn't work, though. <laughs> so Necro Butcher, not on my list of favorite wrestlers. I think my oh. I think we've talked about it. I think my favorite wrestler is Terry Funk. I think Piper is probably a very close second. Yep. Um, but Elvis Presley's favorite wrestler <laughs> was not Terry <laughs> Funk, was not Roddy Piper. It was Tretch no. Phillips. Uh, now, as we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I've seen this repeated in a bunch of places and not in a way where it, it looks like it was cut and paste from somewhere else. There are just several different places and sources and, and variations of the story. Uh, notably, in Pepper Martin's book, Shrapnel of the Soul and Redemption, he mentions that Elvis and Tretch were actually friends, uh, as, as well as just oh. being his favorite wrestler. They actually did have uh, some form of a friendship. Now, I had heard of Tretch prior to beginning charting the territories, probably first through his son, Tretch Jr., who was working indies uh, when I ran Woo Wrestling and might have might have been on some shows with Joey Corman and Samir Jabbar, for all I know. Um, but one thing I didn't know, I always thought Tretch was a cool name because it was so unusual, but I didn't know what it where it really came from. So, John, do you know how the name Tretch came about? Well, it's short for treacherous. Yeah, which um, is badass. And and at yeah. sometimes he is billed as treacherous Phillips, which is so fucking yeah. cool. Yeah, it's really cool. And I, I was trying to figure out exactly what the, the, the origin 
of of the name was? Where did he become known as the treacherous one? I've read some stories that said it was from when he was in the Navy, World War II. He became known as a treacherous one. Uh, I've read another story, I think, from Frankie Kane saying that uh, Anton Ripper Leone uh, came that gave him that nickname from when he was a from when they were when they were youths. Frankie Kane and and and, and Tretch Phillips hanging out in Columbus, Ohio. Leone would just mess with them and try to scare them a lot. And he would, would just call him, "You look treacherous. You're the treacherous one." Um, but that could, cannot cannot confirm either of those 100. percent The earliest records I could find for Tretch uh, wrestling was was late 1951 in Utah. Uh, so at, at this point in time, he'd been wrestling for at least 14 years. He had been uh, in the McGurk territory previously in 1960, 1961, but came back in January 1965. Uh, we talked about them keeping Hodge and Savoldi away from one another. So what Hodge is doing, he actually won loser leave town matches in consecutive weeks against Ken Lucas and then Nelson Royal. So they're really building him up, uh, keeping him away from Savoldi, but making it very clear that he is on a collision course with Angela Savoldi. Then he gets involved in a feud with Tretch Phillips that involves a roll of nickels, chicken wire, mountaineer matches, and Tretch's big mouth. Now, you can see how this feud plays out on our blog. Uh, it's the our anatomy of a feud for the first quarter of 1965. But this is really cool. A newspaper article in Springfield, yeah. Missouri, says that Tretch got on the house mic and called Hodge a skinny, pencil-necked beanpole and a pampered hometown darling to goad him into a match. Wow. Wow. He said that to Danny wow. Hodge. I, I got to say, John, in my days in independent wrestling... One of the coolest things was the fact that I could, you know, get right in the face of a guy twice my size and and five times as tough as me and just unload on him and call him a bunch of names. And for the most part, there were no repercussions. Uh, And so just think of how cool it is to be able to step into the ring with literally one of the toughest sons of bitches in the history of tough sons of bitches, Danny fucking Hodge, who can crush an apple with one hand. And get yeah. to call him a skinny, pencil-necked, beanpole, and pampered hometown darling. I know. I think pampered hometown darling hurts. That's the that's that's the uh, that's the that's John, the knife. Now, that's twisting the knife there. Right? You were never a wrestling oh. manager, but John, in all your <laughs> days of alter of, of 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 your life, have you ever gotten so mad at someone that you called them a name? Like, what's the worst thing you've ever called somebody in the heat of the moment? Oh man! Or have Worst you? Thing I have. I don't know. I I I I. Uh, you're, no, you're I was lo- raised are you a, well. You're a lover, no. not a fighter. I'm a lover, not a fighter. Okay. All right. Um, I'm trying. I'm trying to go. I'm worst. trying to dig in. I'm trying to find out your deepest, darkest secrets. If you have, I know. None, I know what it was. Okay. I know what it was. All right. I call. I had a kid who is kind of is kind of is kind of a bully, um, and he had glasses. Um. And I have glasses, I, John. I, I so just, just before I know. you continue. Just, so do all right. So do I. I'm wearing them okay. right now. But this is your kids, and I don't remember where I heard it. I heard it as an insult, maybe in a song, maybe in a movie. Um, but I called the kid a skinny little four-eyed freak. Right? <gasps> yeah. Oh my goodness. But John. the thing is, like, the, the thing is, um, he did have glasses. Uh, he was not skinny. <laughs> 
and he was not little. <laughs> um, so it, it was, the insult made no sense, but it didn't, you know, he didn't process it that way as the insult making no sense. He just processed it as an insult. Um, and then he chased me all the way back. I was faster than him because he was kind of, I honestly, I should have went with like fat, but I didn't go with fat. You can't fat shame anymore. I'm sorry. Apologies. Apologies. Yeah. I got to get out the notes app and do my Tommy dreamer type apology. <laughs> the, I did not, I should, I, I skinny little four eight freak. He was like a big hefty husky husky is where he shot. Husky. He was a big husky four eight freak. Big husky four right, and just a husky kid with glasses, big. So yeah. he, cha- you know, he chased me. I was faster than him, but it was like instant karma right here. Here it is. On the way home, I slipped in a huge pile of like dog shit, <laughs> uh, and got like dog shit all over me. I was like all over like my legs and my my arms. Um, I able I was able to get up and still beat him. That's how that's how fat he was. He couldn't even catch me then. Uh, I was able to still able to beat him in my house. Lock the door, uh, and like dispose of like the the clothes and uh, clean up. But I had to like you know I I hid in my house for like it seemed like all summer. So I was like scared to uh, to see this kid. Yeah, you know that that was it. That brought me back. I feel like this is therapy now. Whew, wow, I'm sweating from that. It kind of sounds like the Whew. the a Christmas story movie with Ralphie and the bully. Yeah. Yeah. You needed a little brother to go ham hog on him. But all right, well, there you go. John falling into a pile of dog shit, also known as a yes. pile of karma. Yeah, exactly. And, it, and apparently like, you've never strayed since. You never said a bad, you never said an ill word about anybody ever since. So clearly you were uh, scared straight by your smelly straight. experience. One would say scared shitless. Ah, yes. Very good. <laughs> No, don't be sorry. Uh, so How yeah, so, mountain ear match. Whew. Yes, so there you go, skinny four-eyed freak. Uh, instead of skinny <laughs> pencil-necked beanpole. That's what. So now, if you ever run into that guy again, I don't know if you're friends on the Facebook, but you now will call him a skinny oh. pencil-necked beanpole and throw in pampered hometown darling just for the hell of it yeah. to see what happens. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's Tretch Phillips. Now another newcomer is Kurt Steiger. Now of course earlier. Mm. When discussing 1973, we said Kurt might have been there, or it might have been Carl, or it might have been both. But Kurt was definitely here in 1965. However, he was missing something, and that was the Vaughn. And this was the first time he used that name. Uh, His real name was Arnold Pastrick. He began his career under his real name, uh, then switched it to Al Torres, not to be confused with Alberto Torres of the Torres Wrestling Family. Yeah. But he came here in February 65 and adopted the Steiger name for the first time. Two years later, in 1967, he hooked up with a wrestler uh, whose real name was Lorne Corlette, who changed his name to Carl Von Steiger. And by this point, Kurt had already added the Von to his name. So the two, Kurt and Carl Von Steiger, had a very successful Five-year run together, mostly on the West Coast, but also internationally. Uh, They teamed up through 1972. Then they split up for a few years, and then they teamed up again uh, in the mid to late 70s for runs in the Southeast and again on the West Coast. Now, what's really interesting is that before 1967, when they teamed up as the Von Steigers, 
they teamed up at least once very early in both men's careers. Yeah. In April 1960 in Winnipeg, Al Torres and Lauren Corlett, as as Al Torres and Lauren Cornet, Lauren Corlett, man, I get that and Cornette mixed up a lot. Uh, <laughs> but Al Torres and Lauren Corlett teamed up to face Guy Vinci and Ed Moffat. Uh, there's some huh. great footage of the Von Steigers in Australia on YouTube. Oh, yeah. Uh, this is a six-man tag team match where it's the Von Steigers and Gary Hart against King Curtis Iakea, Mark Lewin, and Spiros Arian. And this is great mostly for what happens uh, at the end. So, John, walk us through right. this clip. Oh, yeah. Well, the cage match, it's a cage match. We mentioned it's a cage match. It's a cage match. And I love, I love the cage here just because the cage looks like one of those. It, it makes the old, like, you know, the, the Memphis cages are, you know, look like the, the big blue cage in the WWF in the 80s. This cage looks like it could collapse at any freaking second. It's fantastic. Um, but the clip is like the, the, the third fall of the, of the cage match. It's mostly Gary Hart getting badly, badly beaten. Um, and after there's an interview with Gary, he's just a bloody, bloody, bloody mess. And he's back there in the locker room with Devon Steigers. And he's like, wait till my mother hears about this. Wait till my mother hears about this with blood all over his face. And he's like waving the camera. I gotta get the get that camera out of here. It's this great footage just for that. If you watch, just watch the, the end of it even. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's a it. short clip because it's just the last fall. But that, yeah, that interview is something because he's a bloody mess. Um, yeah. It's great. There's also uh, footage from San Francisco in 1977. So this was after their hiatus and then uh, re being reunited. And this is the Von Steigers versus Kevin Sullivan, who was also at Cauliflower Alley Club, and Barry Orton. Well, Barry O there, yeah. yeah. So they're sort of like, at this point in their career, the Von Steigers are sort of like the bit players. You could sort of tell they're just using, uh, like the, 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 the story here is that uh, Roop has a bounty on Sullivan, Bob Roop. Uh, which plays into the finish, like Barrio double crosses Sullivan and Pyle drives him. Who comes out to promo and gives a gives a check to Barry. So it's like the Von Steigers are sort of just like the the bit players in the in the in the in the overall uh, story here. But they still like they're they're great to watch. And it's like they're even though they're an evil you know the supposed to be the evil German team, they do a lot more like quote unquote, I guess what you call it, scientific wrestling than you would expect. Of a heel, I mean, they do the double teaming and the little choking here and there, but they do a lot of like standard scientific wrestling, which I wasn't expecting to see from them, honestly. Yeah, and then you also mentioned that Roop at one point, and this now we're going behind the scenes, uh, oh. where Roop claimed that Kurt told Roy Shire that uh, Roop and Sullivan were planning to take over the territory. So, uh, a little more on that for our listeners, yeah, yeah. Roop called Kurt a stooge. Yep. <gasps> and that's, I mean, that's worse than than calling someone a skinny uh, bean, bean pole or <laughs> oh, four-eyed yeah. freak. That's a stooge that's is the worst thing yeah. you can call somebody in, in yeah. professional wrestling. Uh, but yeah. I guess that's what Roop called Kurt. Yeah, he did. Well, Kurt had a history of, uh, I guess, uh, telling things out of school because there's a article from the June 1973 issue of Wrestling Guide. Oh, yes. <laughs> the article is titled, So You Want to Be a Wrestler? And this is part two of a series where writer Kevin Shane undergoes training with Kurt Von Steiger. 
And in part two, in this article, he actually explains being taught how to properly take a bump in 1973 yeah. in a wrestling magazine. Yeah. He tells yeah. everything about how you you know tuck your chin, you know spread your you know spread your arms out as you make impact. He literally goes step by step through everything. We learn uh, when we train to be professional wrestlers or professional wrestling managers about how to lessen the impact of a bump. Yeah. And this is all in print. Yeah. I was stunned. Yeah. 1973. <laughs> so was this? I so was Wrestling here. Guide one of the bigger magazines or not? Do you know? I would call it like second, second tier, probably. Okay. Uh, second, so, but it's maybe on, second. But it's on newsstands. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So, yeah, yeah a kid in 1973 uh, could have learned how to take a bump and then could have walked into a, a locker room and said, uh, put me in, put me in. I know how to I bump. just love the photos of of Kurt Kurt von Steiger in this in this article too. We got to post this to Twitter of if we can, because uh, he's you know the, the the kid is just in like jeans with his shirt off, the skinny kid, right? And then Kurt is there. He's got his shirt off, but he's got like a pair of like dress slacks, like pinstripe dress slacks, a belt, and like black you know like gold toe dress socks on like he just like he came from like he came from court or something you know and just like oh kid let's roll around let me show you how to show you to take a bump yeah <laughs> it's just the most bizarre <laughs> yeah i, I mean I, so i'm just stunned that they that they printed this and that kurt von steiger didn't get blackballed for it yeah shocking yeah. Uh, and so, and and again, so if it was in the June 1973 issue, that probably means that means it probably actually happened in 1970, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> given the apparent deadlines of these magazines and the way they date yeah. them. So yeah. yeah, that's that's just crazy. But yeah, we'll we'll post that uh, article on Twitter. It's it's really amazing. Uh, and of course, in addition to all that, you can see the advertised lineups for all known house shows on the blog. Uh, and in the first quarter of 1965, my records have. 117 house shows for the three-month period, January through March of 1965. Um, we have less complete records uh, from this time than we did from 1973, but the other thing to consider, they were running less shows. Uh, in 73, they were running a solid three a night and probably closer to you know four on some nights. Here, it's more like three a night, uh, and one of those three is a very small show in a spot town that might only have four wrestlers on it. Plus, uh, in the 60s, they weren't working as much on Sundays, and they might not have been working as much on Saturdays. So that's why we have almost only half as many. We have 117 from a quarter in 1965, and we had 222 from a quarter in 1973. Now, when we get into the 80s, when we cover the 80s, we have even less because they were generally running one one show a night during the week and then uh, an afternoon and an evening show on Sundays. So we have even less huh. For those time periods. But yeah, we'll talk about the life of a wrestler and all the travels they make. But we'll also talk about the travels I made because I Ooh, got yes. back a few days ago from Las Vegas. This was my first trip okay. to Vegas since February of 2020. And I had been going mm -hmm. a good four or more times a year for many years. Uh, but huh. because of uh, COVID and whatnot, I took yeah. an extended break. Now, of course, I'm going back in October for the World Series of Poker, but this was for the Cauliflower Alley Club. Uh, John, have you ever been to the CAC? 
I have not. I would okay. like to in future years. I would like to go. I, 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 this year's is rough. Like we just said, look at the the COVID stuff, and I've got uh, with my 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 wedding this year. I've got a lot more money going going out of the pocket and coming into the pockets. Right. Uh, but hopefully, in future years, I would really like to make it out there. Yeah, this was my first time, and I, I met a lot of people for the first time. I also reconnected with a lot of people that I had known from years earlier or perhaps who had only known uh, virtually through uh, the Internet. Uh, and in some cases, I knew people from America Online and Prodigy uh, and met wow. them in person for the first time. Um, I was hoping to meet more, but unfortunately um, – so. For the last month or so, I've been dealing, John, with some lower back issues. Um, it's been on and off, and I thought I had gotten it, I'd gotten past it. But uh, the morning of the last day of the convention, which was Wednesday, uh, it uh, it was on again, and my back Aww. seized up. Um, and aside from one excursion to TGI Fridays to get some food, I was. Uh, in the room, laying in bed and doing some uh, stretching exercises that my doctor had recommended uh, all day. Uh. So I missed um, – they had dinners on two nights. Uh, the second night was the big one. Um, so I only went to the dinner on the first one. So uh, oh, I, that was really disappointing. Um yeah, I was really looking forward, especially because I had I'd had such a great time the first two days there. And everyone I met, yeah. um, people I met for the first time when I told them it was my first Cauliflower Alley Club, they were so supportive. They were they were so grateful that I you know Aww. did show up and they said, we hope you come back, blah, 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 blah. So I know I'm going to miss some people, but I do want to talk about who I met. Um, oh, yes, first please. off, I met two members of the Arcadian Vanguard universe. The oh. first was the producer to the stars, Lou Kippelman. And you know how I know, I know he's the producer to the stars? It's because he doesn't produce our podcast. So clearly, he only <laughs> produces the stars. But yeah, this is my first time meeting Lou in the flesh and also Dan Farron. Oh, may he, may he rest in peace. And Dan Farron uh, is always going to be over in my book because he actually worked with Harley Racist. Yeah. <laughs> in, the, in the days of incredibly strange wrestling and probably the Ku Klux yes. Clown as well. Um, oh. I also got to meet uh, Jim Valley, who is the fucking oh, king goodness. of recovery uh, and who I received love, love uh, un, unannounced and unexpected. He received the Courage Award this year in what was a truly touching moment. And Jim is going to be mentioned later on This Month I Learned because he was integral uh, mm -hmm. in helping me learn the thing I learned. I also met authors Greg Oliver of Slam Wrestling and authors oh, nice. many, many nice. books, Dan Murphy and Brian Solomon. And Brian uh, has written a couple of books, but uh, his book on the Sheik uh, is coming out oh, next yeah. year and has already received significant praise from people who have uh, proofed it or gotten advanced copies or what have you. So uh, I really enjoyed talking to all three of them. And, and honestly, you know, I... You know, I guess I'm a wrestling historian. I've only been in the game for a short period of time, especially compared to guys like Greg Oliver. Um, but I will say they were all incredibly welcoming. And when they introduced me to others, uh, they said, this is a fellow wrestling historian, Al Getz. And as silly as it sounds, hearing it come from their lips actually meant a lot to me. Uh, and, and you know, yeah. was, was sort of validation that even though on some level I knew I was a part of that club to hear them say it really, you know, yeah. legitimized it. So uh, that oh, meant a lot great. to me. Um, oh, that's good too. I mentioned some folks I had only known digitally uh, through AOL and Prodigy. Um, Joel Gertner, 
uh, was one of them. So uh, talk to him. Right. He was there. And also Sheldon Goldberg, who is a promoter uh, in New England, yeah. who I, I actually did meet him one time before. He was at Curtis Comes Home, which was the show they did in Pittsburgh to raise money for Brian Hildebrand's medical bills uh, when he was still undergoing treatment for cancer. This was the show where uh, both, well, all three of the major companies, WWF, WCW, and ECW, all sent talent to work this show. Yeah. Um, as well as some handpicked friends of Brian's from the Indies in Tennessee, of which I was one of them. So, uh, you know, we reconnected with Sheldon. Uh, also got to meet for the first time wrestling promoters Carmine Desperito and Joel Goodhart. Joel Goodhart, of course, promoted Tri-State Wrestling, which was the precursor to ECW. Now, Joel ran in Philadelphia, uh, and I lived in Philadelphia at the time. I uh, went to Temple University, my first attempt at college. Um, and, and so I actually attended a couple of the very early tri-state shows, which were at McGonagall Hall, which was on campus at Temple University. It's where the Temple Owl basketball team played. Uh, and I made a point of telling Joel that while I did go to some tri-state shows, I might be the only tri-state fan in the world that admits he was not at the Eddie Gilbert Cactus Jack uh, three two out of three falls <laughs> legendary match that everyone in the world claims they were at, even though yeah. Joel said it was actually his one of his lowest attendance shows ever. Yeah. yeah. Also met Lynn Denton, the grappler. <gasps> wow. And I told him oh, how much so cool. both you and I absolutely love his book. Yeah. Uh, and also several folks I worked with or knew of from the Indies over you know, the years. Uh, Brian Logan, John Schuyler, who uh, gave one of the uh, learning sessions, uh, and Brett Wolverton, who's a uh, commentator uh, out of North Carolina and Georgia, um, who has worked in uh, anarchy in Cornelia, Georgia, where I worked uh, many, many times over the years for Wildside. Um, so, yeah, I met a lot of people. And like I said, I was really looking forward to meeting more. Um, but uh, my age... And my back caught up with me, and that really sucked. Back. Um, I flew back the next day, and I do want to give a shout-out to Delta Airlines and their Delta One cabin, uh, because the seats in the Delta One cabin don't just recline. They actually go full flat. They go fully flat. And wow. had it not been for that, that four-hour flight home uh, would have been agony. Fortunately, it was only slightly uncomfortable. So thank you, Delta thank Airlines. You. Thank you, Delta. Yeah. So, John, I, I think since the last time we recorded this podcast, you have ventured you ventured out to uh, City Field. <laughs> I, I'm sure you've been to other places yet. as well, but uh, I remember you saying uh, you yeah. went to City Field and you ran into somebody there. I ran into Mr. Wrestling John Arezzi there, of course, at a Mets game. Uh, yeah, we had the first time I've been to a, a a baseball game in however many however many you know the 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 since since COVID. So we went to a, a day game, first game of a, a doubleheader, section one fifteen. Sarah and I are sitting there stuffing our faces with French fries and hot dogs, and I'm pounding Miller Lights there in the section one fifteen. And who do I see? See Mr. John Arezzi there, so I met John Arezzi, which I've, I've never met him before, and he, he was probably there as well. So I saw saw him, talked to talked to him for a few minutes. Yeah, I'm also at, leaving. He was the at house. Cauliflower Alley. He was the MC for both nights of the dinner. I had met him oh. a couple of months ago earlier in Iowa at the Thes Tragos uh, oh, right. festivities. Yeah. But all right, so and sorry. I'm also, Continue. Yeah, 
Oh, I'm also leaving the house next week. Uh, was it on Wednesday? I hear there's some wrestling thing happening in Queens ah. as well. Um, so I'm leaving the house for that. This is my first time seeing wrestling in uh, is, you know, a few years as well. So we'll see. I'll report back with that next month. See how that goes. I, yeah, I mean, you know, I, so I have, I have in the past uh, offered up some mild criticisms of of all elite wrestling, more from a business standpoint. Uh, while there are some wrestlers I just can't get into, um, there are a lot of wrestlers there that I know and like uh, and respect, and uh, but they really, you know, talk about knowing what their audience wants and and giving it to them. And, you know, listening to the customer, listening to the consumer and and delivering uh, in a business that's that has been built on teasing things and not always delivering them or on outright, you know, bait and switches to see what All Elite really has done. Uh, even in just the last few months, it, it really is uh, worth noting, documenting and commending, um, you know. So, yeah, I'm I'm I would look forward to see what you uh, who in many ways is probably outside their target market. Um, yeah, you know, thinks, so. thinks of the live experience uh, in a very unique venue as well. So this is the, yeah. the Arthur Ashe stadium, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious to see how it'll be, uh, you know, from the, the audience perspective, because the shape of that stadium is different than, you know, the tennis stadium. So it's, you know, it's different than, you know, your, your standard uh, arena. So, so I'm very and so that will have happened will by the time this podcast comes out, right? Because we're recording this yes. the Sunday before it comes out on Thursday, and you're going to go to the show yep. this Wednesday. So yeah. So yep. if you hear this podcast, that means John was already at the Arthur Ashe Stadium. Don't think he's you know got the wrong date and he's going to go to an empty <laughs> arena or he's going to get there and you know see tennis and be confused. Yeah. No, he's going to all elite <laughs> wrestling at the Arthur Ashe Stadium. So uh, yeah, I yeah. would I would love to uh, hear about that. We'll talk about that next month, um, along with some yes. other things, but in we want to talk about one new thing that we each learned this month. So John, as always, oh, yes. you go first and listeners, in I'll, case I'll I haven't said this, the reason why John goes first is because I always come armed with two new things just in case John learned the thing that I also learned. Cause a lot of times we collaborate and, and discuss things yeah. together. So it's entirely possible that I shared something with him and then he tries to steal it and make it his own. So this way, <laughs> if he steals my thing, I've got another one got as it. backup. So John, got what did you one. learn this month? Okay. So uh, wrestling at, you know, at Madison square garden is pretty well documented. Uh, but you know, living in New York city, uh, Queens, I'm fascinated by all those sort of like second tier and third tier venues that the that the Capital Wrestling Corporation, Worldwide Wrestling Federation, you know, would run over the years. Um, and one of my favorite of those historical New York venues is Sunnyside Gardens in Queens. Uh, its former site is, is mere minutes from my my my, my current apartment. Uh, and they first started doing TV from Sunnyside in the fall of 1958. They had been doing TV from, from Washington, D.C. on Thursdays from 9 to 11 p.m. on Channel 5, WNEW TV. But wrestling was so popular then that Channel 5 wanted to add uh, another night of wrestling. So Capital Wrestling began doing this additional TV out of Sunnyside on Tuesdays from 9 to 11. And this month I learned that the ringside commentator for the Sunnyside Garden matches on Channel 5 on Tuesday night was none other than Monty Hall, future host of Let's Make a Deal. Wow. 
I'd never heard that before. That's wild. Yeah. Me wow. either. Another thing I didn't know that he actually did New York Rangers hockey on the radio for 1959 to, to 1960, which I thought that was really interesting. Monty, Monty all up in the sports. Yeah. I, I He's also from Winnipeg. So maybe he knew the Von Snyders. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe he knew, maybe he knew Chris Jericho's dad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There you go. Well, I, don't, I don't know if his dad was originally from Canada or not, or if he just, uh, that's where Chris was born because that's where Ted was playing at the time. So I, I'm not sure about that. Yeah. Um, but all right. Well, my, this month I learned, as I mentioned earlier, I met Jim Valley. For the first time. Uh, and Jim, of course, uh, for a while was hosting the Portland WrestleCast, uh, which is on uh, Figure Four Online's uh, membership site, one of their uh, radio shows. Uh, and Jim sort of tossed the idea of perhaps me doing something uh, with a future episode of the Portland WrestleCast. Uh, he had mentioned maybe talking about when Dutch Savage was wrestling in Oklahoma as Lon Stewart. So I was thinking about that, but then I started thinking that Danny Hodge had a brief run in Portland. So I did some research into that. He was there for about three months in 1963. And so my This Month I Learns are usually about a unique match involving people you never thought would be opposite the ring one another. Um, And this one, this is a match of a tag team match featuring four first ballot Hall of Famers. Well, I would say three first ballot Hall of Famers and one clear Hall of Famer. In fact, um, two of these four men are in the Tragos Thez Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame, uh, Ken Man- Johnny Mantel's Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame in Wichita Falls, and the WWE Hall of Fame. Two of them are in uh, two of those three Hall of Fames. And... Um, one of them, Danny Hodge, is uh, was in the inducted in the first class of the New York Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame that had their first induction class uh, last month. So you're talking four Hall of Famers, all in a tag team match, and this is Danny Hodge teaming with Luther Lindsay to face Pat Patterson and the Sensational Intelligent Destroyer. Whew. What a match. Now, Hodge and Patterson had crossed paths in Oklahoma. It was either earlier in 63 or it was in 1962, but Pat was billed as Killer Pat Patterson from New York State. When he came to Oklahoma, he had a feud with Hodge and uh, and then left, um, but they ran into one another again uh, in the fall of 1963. And this this specific match happened on September 2nd, 1963 in Portland. Now, Luther Lindsay was a longtime star in Portland, often teaming with Shag Thomas. Uh, but the Destroyer had just gotten there uh, for, I think, the first time. I think it was the first time he ever worked in Portland. Um, but they billed him as having been a you know sellout attraction in Los Angeles and coming to Portland. So, yeah, in one ring, you have a guy who could crush an apple with one hand teaming up with the only guy to make Stu Hart submit, if you believe those stories, <laughs> in, in Stu Hart's dungeon, along with one of professional wrestling's first openly gay performers and perhaps the greatest, most successful mass professional wrestler outside of Mexico in the world, on, on a worldwide wow. basis, not including Mexico. And they're all in Portland, Oregon, in the same ring at the same time on September 2nd, 1963. Danny Hodge, Luther Lindsay, Pat Patterson, and the sensational Intelligent Destroyer. Wow. 
Yeah. Amazing, amazing talent. Wow. Have you ever heard the story uh, that Bret Hart tells it of uh, that? I, I think Bret Hart tells the story, but his dad carried a picture. Yes. Of Luther Lindsay. I've heard that. Yeah. In his yeah, wallet. Yeah. 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 Huh. Which shows you how uh, much Stu thought of Lindsay. And Lindsay, yeah. you know, outside from a couple of runs in Portland and I think Stampede, he was used, he, he he didn't lose a lot, but he was never pushed really hard in Mid-Atlantic, but he wrestled there regularly over the years. He's just someone that I wish there was footage of um, yeah. because, again, by all accounts, was just incredible. I believe he was the first black wrestler to uh, compete for the National Wrestling Alliance world heavyweight title he had several matches against luthez oh wow i could i i could be wrong um and i i I made a point of saying the national wrestling alliance uh just in case there had been others prior to 47 um but yeah that's a lot of history in that one match um and more recent history can be heard uh on my recent appearance on between the sheets john uh, my first appearance oh, yes. on that podcast in about a year but uh, earlier in september episode 318 of between the sheets with uh chris zellner and david bixenspan where we discussed the first week of september 1998 and in particular at that time i was working full-time in professional wrestling i was living outside of nashville tennessee working for Bert Prentice's Music City Wrestling as Bert's uh, office assistant. So we got to talk about a lot of things that were happening in the world of wrestling, including Music City Wrestling, in the first week of September 1998 on Between the Sheets, episode 318. Uh, John, aside from home and city field, what, what have you been up to? Any, any, anything interesting wrestling-wise? Nothing exciting wrestling-wise, no. nothing. Just, until, uh, I mean, we're, we're, until Wednesday. Until Wednesday, yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot of a lot of behind the scenes stuff. Uh, well, you posted a lot you posted a uh, picture of a video reel of uh, some Memphis wrestling. Oh yeah, well yeah, I could talk about that if you yeah. want. Yeah, they um that 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 is I, I, I won this on eBay, uh, and it is labeled what I did. It co- wait, I'm if it costs less than fifty dollars and you didn't send it to me, we're about to be <laughs> we're about to be fighting. <laughs> I'm about to chase you into your home, and I hope you slip and fall on some dog shit. <laughs> dog shit. No, it was way more than that. Okay. Um, uh, the the it's it's labeled what I believe it is. It's from May 1976, and earlier when talking about Pez, we mentioned Lou Thez's promotion. Yeah. Uh, is it the Universal Wrestling Association? Is that what it was called? Universal believe... Wrestling something that starts with an A. Oh yeah, Alliance Association. Um, I believe it's a real an entire uh, entire episode of their TV from huh? May 1976. That that's what it says on the canister and on the reel. Um, I've got it out being transferred now. Uh, once I got it back, I'll I'll post it on YouTube, of course. Uh, but I'm, I'm very curious to see if that's actually on it. I don't know how much TV of that stuff is out floating around out there. So maybe they uh, shot maybe they it shot it on the roof. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's the maybe it's the <laughs> you know the big the big the big let it be finale of the of the uh, Luthez promotion. But yeah, I'm not sure how much you know. It's got uh, the Islanders on there who like I think are the Offensica at that point, 1976. Um, I think Troy uh, was a Dream Machine early Dream Machine. Troy Graham is on there. Uh, 
I, I forget who else is on the tape, but I, I, I don't want to talk about it too much because I, I, I don't want to get it back and be disappointed when it's actually just a bunch of you know, commercials right. from night, which would be cool, but not. Uh, yeah. But if it is so, uh, Luthez's promotion, you'll post it on your Twitter. So uh, tell our listeners where they can find you on Twitter. Oh, yes. Follow me to find all more. There's all so much more about this exciting mystery reel uh, at J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R. It's at John Boucher on Twitter. Follow me. I'll yeah. follow you. Yeah. Well, there you go. And you can find me on Twitter at Al Gets Wrestling. That's Al G-E-T-Z Wrestling. Now, next month on the podcast, John, we're going to go we're going to go back to the future or we're going to go ahead to the past. <laughs> we're going to go to 1981. <laughs> So we're moving ahead from 73 and 65. We're moving up to 81. We're going to look at Mid-South Wrestling in the fourth quarter of 1981. And this is really interesting because the crew, as far as main eventers and, and, and guys on the top of the cards, is really thin. And really, aside from the Samoans, who actually leave to go on a tour of Japan, all you've got is Orndorff, Orton, and Roop as heels. Uh, feuding with JYD, Mike George, and Ted DiBiase. Uh, as for as far as the main the main event scene goes, those are it for the full timers. You also have part timers Dusty Rhodes and Kabuki who are feuding with one another, okay. uh, which sounds like a hoot and a half. Um, and we'll look at a, a rather large list of uh, preliminary wrestlers, uh, including some many familiar faces. We're also going to go move forward to the second quarter of 1965, where Danny Hodge will finally get his rematches with Angelo Savoldi, plus a 19-year-old sensation makes his first local appearances and the professional wrestling debut of a future world heavyweight champion. I'm sure you know who that is, uh, but he uh, was one of many professional wrestlers that debuted for the McGurk Territory that had uh, wrestled in college in the state of Oklahoma. That might be a hint right there. Plus, part three of my interview with Gil Culkin, and we're going to look at Mid-Atlantic in the third quarter of 1973, which is right before everything changes for that territory, and a whole Hmm. lot more. To be the first to know when new episodes of Charting the Territories, Wrestling History Mysteries, and Stats 101 are available. Subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingthepodcast.com. Charting the Territories is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. John, we will see you in October. See you in October, wrestling fans.